0: This is TRIPWIRE Week in Review for week ending June 10th, 2022. I'm Martha Kocher with TREP, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate, and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Hendry, Head of CRE and Advisory Services. This week, the World Bank cut its forecast for global GDP growth this year and warns of stagflation risk. Mortgage applications hit a 22-year low but jobs and inflation were the preoccupation in economic data as the Fed prepares to meet next week. We saw a slight uptick in weekly jobless claims as May unemployment held steady at 3.6%, and the average price of gas exceeded $5 a gallon as we wait on the consumer inflation numbers out Friday morning. Manis, investors are looking for any signs that peak inflation has passed.
1: They sure are. With uh, gas over five bucks a gallon, it's hard to generate a lot of enthusiasm for where the economy is right now. You know, we go through fits and starts in investor sentiment. There are times, and and today is not one of them by any means, or this last three month stretch, where investors will look for any excuse to push market prices higher, stock prices higher, asset values higher, et cetera. Now we're in a stretch where it seems like investors are looking for any headline to get out of the market take risk off take a step off the the gas pedal the sentiment is clearly not positive right now and we saw that in the last two hours of trading today thursday june 9th right the markets were kind of meandering along laboring a little bit but it wasn't a terrible day until the last two hours when the index is sold off about two percent and we all know that tomorrow morning we see cpi and this had the look and feel of traders looking to race for the exits in anticipation for a negative print tomorrow morning, just really rattling the markets, right? There was no other uh, event today that really would have forced this kind of sell-off, and yet people really raced for the exits starting at about 2 p.m. uh, Eastern Daylight today. It wasn't a completely negative week in terms of news. We saw some uh, positive indicators last Friday. We did see a good jobs report. Uh, it's, it saw a better than expected job creation number, and it saw a slightly lower than expected wage growth number. Usually, that's a recipe for for a Goldilocks-type uh, situation, but that wasn't really enough to really kick the markets into gear. We also did see some negative headlines. Of course, Target uh, had their second profit warning in two weeks, which... Uh, sent their stock tumbling anew and we did see elon musk who can be a live wire and and can be very opinionated but he is also somebody that's followed by a lot of people say that he has a really bad feeling about the economy and that he was planning to lay off 10 percent of its uh staff i think the latter two stories target and elon musk had a much bigger impact this week than did the jobs number last friday yeah, picking
2: up on that, Manus, uh, I did see where Elon Musk kind of walked back some of the commentary on the cutting 10%. I think he clarified uh, in a subsequent tweet that that was going to be the managerial and executive staff and not uh, company-wide. And by the end of that exchange online, I think he was actually saying they look uh, 2023 to have expansion or actually more higher. So, um, But it is interesting when somebody has that many followers, and people are plugged into them like they are, you know, one tweet tweet can really move the market. It's it's interesting. It seems like uh, not that long ago, we were hearing inflation was transitory. And it seems pretty quick that it's ramped up, obviously, to the levels that it has. And people are already looking for it to be at peak, you know, and hopefully for some sort of decline. But I think if we look at this objectively, um, from everything that I'm seeing in the day-to-day life, like, I don't think we're at peak inflation at this point. And you know, there were some headlines or some other bullets this week that we can kind of look at just to echo the sentiment comments you made about the marketplace. So if you look at mortgage rates specifically on the single family side, uh, demand was is down significantly. Uh, interest rates are continuing to climb. So uh, footnote here, average contract interest rate on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. These are for conforming loans. So in uh, 2022, that'd be $647,200 loan balance or less. Uh, interest rates climbed to 5.4% uh, from 533 and applications for purchases, uh, financing fell 7% for the week and 21% lower than the same week a year ago. I mean, that's pretty significant. And I think, you know, the refinance market, which has really been uh, propelling the economy over the last several years, those numbers are even more daunting. They were down 6% for the week. But if you look at them year over year, it's down 75%. So the mortgage interest rates are really, you know, maybe somewhat slowing down the the sale, the purchase market, but 75% on the refinance. And I don't, you know, obviously if you refinanced or financed a property in the last five years, like there's no impetus to refinance at this point, the the rates are significantly higher. So that'll probably continue to stay slow. A couple of other things uh, that I uh, noted here um, on the CRE side, uh, transaction volumes, so commercial property sales were 39.4 billion in April, which was down 16% compared to the same month a year ago. You know that number is a little bit surprising given that we thought maybe um, volume or sales activity was slow down in the pandemic. We never really saw a slowdown after the first 60 days. And this report said there was uh, 13 consecutive months of increases. so this was the first decrease in over a year. Um, you know, multifamily and industrial have continued to kind of lead the way, um, and kind of, you know, sh- shield the market from maybe some of the slowdowns in the other property sectors, office hotels, etc. cetera. Um, the last thing I wanted to point out here was oil prices. You talked a little bit about, you know, just inflation and we're feeling that at the pump significantly across the U S uh, just anecdotally, I was in our New York office this week and one of our coworkers was down at a wedding in Houston and said they were in an Uber ride and the Uber driver was telling them that they had just dropped off an oil executive. And the oil executive was saying that there was a conundrum in the the gas space where gas pumps only go to $9.99 on the digital reading for pricing. And there's a real fear that we're going to go into $10 plus range. And that's going to cause some challenges for retailers to actually show accurate pricing. So the, the oil price here, I think uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, Trafigura chief uh, said that the oil prices could go parabolic, putting the global economy in a critical situation. He had a few other comments around that.
1: Well, that's what uh, Jamie Dimon had said last week as well, that oil could get to that 150 to $175 uh, dollar per barrel uh, price. But Lonnie, just to, to completely show my age here, I will explain that this gas pump issue is not the first time this has come up. When I was a kid, I remember my family paying about 35 cents a gallon. And during the energy crisis of the early seventies, when you had to go and wait online 45 minutes for gas, prices went from about 35 cents to about a buck 35 and nobody was prepared for prices above a dollar. And at that point, uh, what they started to do was charged by the leader. So somehow they were able to change the measure so that they could keep it under a buck per liter. And that's how they dealt with the, uh, the gas gauge not being able to handle the, uh, the change in the, the scale. So we'll see if if they remember that that history lesson going forward if we get to, God forbid, uh, $10.01 per, per gallon.
2: Yeah, that's, it's an interesting construct. Uh, you would never think that that would happen. It's, it's really crazy. The other thing that I've noticed is, and you guys have probably seen this too, is if you go out for, you know, inflation is now really affecting the service industry. So we're seeing that across CRE with higher cost, labor, et cetera. But restaurants, I mean, you have your charges for food and then they're just adding these miscellaneous fees. So they're not necessarily increasing the cost of the entree or the dish. When you get your bill, there's like an extra, you know, couple bucks or five bucks added on for, you know, additional inflation service fees or whatever. And so, um, you know, it's really interesting how people are reacting to that because, you know, they're trying to keep the narrative from the optics perspective to say that, uh, you know, people are still paying, you know, seventeen dollars for chicken parmesan. When you get the bill, you know, it's seventeen plus a five dollars service fee. Um, so, you know, we're seeing it across all the different sectors.
1: Well, my, my wife's moment of outrage this week was we get those little puddings in the cup, you know, the rice puddings from Cro- Cozy Corner or something those like are that. great. I love those. It, I think it's Cozy Corner, something like that. It, it's yeah. that, that kind of name. And she peeled open the top and, you know, the, the size of the container was the same, but there was about a third of the rice pudding in there. And I heard her <laughs> walking away saying, it's you, Cozy Corner, it's you. And, uh... You know, she was stomping her feet and walking around. So I think it's Cozy Shack uh, or
0: something like that.
1: Cozy Shack, that's it. Yeah. It's, it's a very good rice pudding, but you know, we're we're kind of angry with them right now. You know, they're not they're not they're joining everybody else, right? Soon you won't even be able to see that Snickers bar inside the uh the paper wrapper. Uh,
2: well, they're gonna all have the potato chip treatment. You know, you open the bag and there's only about a third of the bag filled with chips. potato chips, yeah. Right, exactly. the
1: airbag.
0: <laughs> so let's let's dig into some office stories. And I think we're gonna start with crabgrass and how crabby is apocalypse? I'd say on the scale of one to 10, it's probably a 10.
1: Well, I'm gonna start. uh, Thank you, Martha, for bringing this up. This is the work of uh, three researchers at Columbia University in New York. It was released in uh, late May. You could find it online. Uh, I'm going to try to get the names of these three people correct. I, You know how I do with names, but uh, R.P. Gupta, Vrinda Mattel, and Steen Van Neuenberg of Columbia put this piece out. And what they concluded after looking at extensive data in New York is that office values are down 32 or 33% from pre-COVID levels. And if you extrapolate that, you, they extrapolate that to be a 28% decline nationwide. So they take the New York numbers and extrapolate them using some adjustments to account for the broader US economy. And they say, if, if that number holds, what they've seen or what we will see over time is a value destruction of $500 billion worth of office, value um, as a result of the pandemic, the work from home and everything else. And now this is not for light reading. I mean, people know, having heard me for two years, that I barely navigate the English language very well. This particular piece is full of Greek letters, extensive mathematical formulas. So it's not the easiest read out there, but the headline really is that in their estimation, We've seen half a trillion dollars worth of value destruction. And Lonnie and I will try to spend the next five minutes kind of peeling that back. Uh, I'm not sure, Lonnie and Martha, if you have any immediate thoughts before we get into that a little bit more.
2: I think we talked a little bit about this last week, starting to see some data around the office sector. So we've we've been talking about this for some time, about what our thoughts are. But it's good to see this report where they actually looked at lease-level data. I think they covered about 105 markets across the U.S., and it looks like uh, their initial findings, it was a decrease of about eight percentage points in lease revenue from January of 2020 through December of 21. What was interesting, at least what I, what I found a little interesting was it wasn't necessarily lower rents, it was lower lease volume. And so I think that really speaks to just the demand side for this asset class. And that's what we've talked about at length here on the podcast around Class A offices, you know, probably surviving and doing really well, whereas these lower tier properties just not having demand for them anymore. And so, you know, it's it's still kind of a slow burn in terms of the the data, you know, becoming available because these leases don't turn over um, in a you know month to month type of scenario like some other properties. They're a little more hedged with longer term leases, but um, it is it is a very interesting concept. I mean, five hundred billion dollars while relative to the overall office market is not a huge number, it's still a really sizable number that I think will impact the marketplace and and consumer behavior.
1: Yeah, I'm going to pivot very quickly on this, because my fear with this particular piece, uh, as well done as it is, and as detailed as it is, and and data centric as it is, sometimes people never look beyond the headline. And what I fear is that people are going to run out there and say it's time to short CMBX triple b minus 11 12 13 14 and 15. So let's peel back that that onion just a bit. You know, those five series which represent the most recent five CMBX series are very office heavy whereas prior five CMBX triple b BB- minus or CMBX series had about 25% exposure to office The last five have had between 31 and 35% exposure to office, and that's meaningful. That's that's bigger exposure to the office segment than we had to the mall segment in CMBX 6, and CMBX triple B minus, which we know was heavily shorted. So should people go out and and, and short these indices at the triple B minus thinking that offices will become the new mall? And my thesis, and you know, I'll be happy and eager to hear her, Alani and Martha's after this, is that the answer is no, and I'll give you two or three reasons for that. Reason number one is as lucrative as that CMBX triple B minus six trade has been. The price of that has gone from ninety four, ninety five, pre COVID, down to a low of about seventy two. It never got as lucrative as people thought it might. Carl Icahn was talking about the fair value of that index being about 50. We never got close to that, that trough. Part of that is because the patience that special servicers had, right? The extend and pretend nature of, of these, these assets lingering around in CMBS purgatory. So I don't think that office, even if office was to be as severe as what retail was, the retail wasn't as lucrative as some thought it might be and, and let's not forget CNBX shorts have been in this trade since 2017 or 2018 we're on year six of this trade so that's reason number one reason number two is a lot of the retail demise came from credit events from retailers sears jc penny um, all the smaller guys that make up the inline stores and then guys like toys r us and, and Sports authority going bankrupt and liquidating, we're not going to see that in the office space. We're not going to see credit events. People may shrink their space. They're not going to default on their leases. And then lastly, even though the headwind of people working from home is severe, I don't think it's as severe as you know the gale winds that we're facing mall owners with e-commerce. So that's my thesis here. I wouldn't be going out and shorting any of these triple B minus with heavy office exposure, but let me open up the floor and let Lonnie and Martha weigh in.
2: Yeah, I would, I would actually agree with you, Manus. I think if we were looking at the two sectors, retail was facing significantly more headwinds. There was definitely more realistic, quantifiable negative impacts to that sector than even what we're seeing in office now. And to your point, we've seen this over the last couple of months where Tenants in the office sector are rising their space and footprint, but we're not seeing people just up and moving out or not paying the leases or having some sort of default event at the, at the tenant level. So, you know, sure, in some markets, there's going to clearly be risk. There's drivers that have changed there and they're not going to be as successful in the office leasing space. You know, the one the one caveat here, and I think you, you hit on it, is e-commerce is not going away for retailers like that's something that's going to kind of go into perpetuity on the work from home, it still remains to be seen. I mean, like we're still really close to the pandemic in terms of time. Like right now, people love the work from home, the hybrid work schedule, et cetera. In five years, the the dynamic may have shifted, you know, significantly and people are missing the, the office environment. And so um, I think in the short term, there's definitely going to be winners and losers. So we may see some secondary and tertiary markets really benefit from this because they have some relative affordability compared to the the top tier markets and you may see some top tier markets that, you know, have a little bit of a lull, but you know, I'm not betting against office properties and top tier markets where, you know, they have financial services or other large industries. I I think eventually people will probably come back to the, uh, to the office space.
0: Yeah. I think you mentioned a couple of things Mass, that I think will resonate. One is this idea of having a sea change, right? There was a sea change of pivoting people from brick and mortar to e-commerce that took a long time to play out. If we are having a similar sea change in working habits, that will take probably considerable amount of time to completely play out. But I do think there's some uncertainty there in terms of, you mentioned credit events. There are a lot of companies that if we have a severe recession will not weather the storm. And so you may see defaults as companies find themselves in bad positions for whatever reason that they may not have anticipated.
1: That's certainly the case, and, and time will tell the severity of the recession. will have a lot to do with that. I'll leave with one final thought as I go through my notes. The one thing that I think will be similar between retail and office is the shape of the default curve right? What we saw with retail is class A muddled through, valuations didn't grow, but they didn't shrink all that much. And guys were able, guys, owners, whatever, women were able to refinance their debts. Class B and C, not so much. And I think that that parallel will likely stay with the office space. The class A stuff muddles through, or maybe even continues to appreciate Bs and Cs you know, is the part of the market, especially in the Northeast and upper Midwest that I would think is most vulnerable to problems down the road.
2: You know, we actually put out a research piece a few months ago, looking at the similarities in financing between large regional, super regional malls and large office buildings. And it was really fascinating to see most of those assets were financed 10 year full term IO notes. And to your point, Manis, so with cost of capital being more, debt service coverage ratios, you know, being impacted, potentially lower occupancy, stag, you know, static rents or maybe a little bit less in rents, uh, the refinance bubble could really dramatically impact, you know, what happens to retail, I mean to office, uh, just like it did in retail. And so it'll be interesting to see what the special servicers in the CNBS market or the the lenders on the balance sheet side. You know, do they want to be uh, aggressive here and force people out? Are they going to do an extend and pretend? I think we actually have a few other stories to talk about today where we're already seeing some extensions and other things, you know, put into place.
0: So let's talk about what other crabgrass stories we have, because there are, believe it or not, some green shoots.
1: Yeah, we have a little of both. We'll start with a little bit more crabgrass. Most of this has to do with downsizings. It's kind of, you know, the beginning of the trend that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. One story from the real deal, teachers on Third Avenue Manhattan downsizing uh, by 40,000 square feet at 733rd Avenue. In Chicago, uh, this is also from the real deal. Echo Global is downsizing by about 25%. That's a big lease there. They're going from 225K to 185. In that same neighborhood, Blue Cross Blue Shield has already trimmed a sizable amount of their space. So those are two stories that caught our eye uh, this week in San Francisco. uh, This is from Globe Street. Ancestry is relocating its corporate headquarters and downsizing by about 60%. Also taking a shorter duration lease in the Philadelphia market, uh, the second largest tenant um, behind a CMBX6 loan. This is the Widener building they are going to also be taking about 50% less space. They're moving from the Widener Building to 1500 Market Street. Uh, Both of those loans back, both of those properties back CMBS loans. Uh, In San Francisco, Forella, Ron, and Martell is looking to downsize by about two thirds, it looks like, for about 125K to 40K. So you can see a theme here of more and more news stories coming out each week with announcements of 25 40 50% reductions in space. In fact, this week there was a headline in the Seattle Times which has been a you know Seattle has been a a uh, bulwark when it comes to office demand. Uh, I think the headline was the incredible shrinking uh, office footprint and lease length. You can look for that story online. They talk about how tenants are renewing but for much shorter periods of time. And for much less space than they had in the past, so uh, this is a trend certainly to to watch.
2: Yeah, we had the term over-retailed. Uh, I wonder if we're going to have something called over-Office. You know, where people are just they have too much space uh, for what their needs are. Um, we're starting to see it play out across multiple markets. I mean, we've talked about several markets here over the last couple of months. So it's not this is not geographically centric. Uh, it's pretty much across the. Uh, the us it'll be interesting it's a double whammy for the property owners in these scenarios so you know look at the, the property in san francisco not only are you losing a tenant to to a smaller space in your building but retenanting that you're in a soft lease market where rental rates are the same or less plus the cost to retenant the space is significantly more than what it would have been in the past in finding labor materials etc is extremely more difficult so you know, I remember we talked about probably three months ago, man. It's where, you know, it was a property owner, a landlord, uh, marketplace in a lot of these markets where they kind of could could drive the demand and um, name the price. And I think it's completely shifted in a lot of these instances. It's it's not favorable for them to have to retenant these spaces. There's a lot of factors that are now negatively impacting their uh, their cash flows at the property level.
1: We have green shoots. We do have green shoots It all. It isn't all negative this week. There's some really interesting and positive stories that we're going to talk about. We even have a broker's start your engines and a deal of the week. A couple of things we haven't done in a while in Santa Clara, pure storage is upping its space by about a third. They're subletting space in mountain view, about 333,000 square feet up from uh, 250,000 square feet. I think they're moving to Santa Clara from Mountain View. Let me correct that. That story is from BizNow in Sunningvale, California. Apple signed a nearly 400,000 square foot lease at J. Paul's Matilda Commons Campus that comes from Globe Street. The story that we saw in The Real Deal today, I like this one, Vernado and Roden Management are considering knocking down 350 Park Avenue which is in itself a pretty big building to begin with and putting up in its place a 1500 foot tower which i think would cast a shadow as far as philadelphia it would easily be the biggest office building in midtown manhattan by far i think it would be a 1.7 uh, million square foot office that is around 51st and park and You know, why is this a green shoot? Smart developers don't consider putting up buildings in a soft market, right? If they think that there's not going to be demand for this type of thing, then they're just setting money on fire, right? So if if these two property owners are going to knock down, and it's not just 350 Park, they'd also knock down 20 East 52nd Street, which I think is the BlackRock building, if I'm not mistaken, they would knock down those two buildings. And, And you don't do this if you think this work from home is gonna knock out 32% of property values in the long term. So a a green shoot there, A, a start your engines thing. We have a start your engines sound effect yet?
0: We do in our archives.
1: We do somewhere in our archives. This is in Milani's neck of the woods. Biz Journals of Dallas is speculating that Wells Fargo is one step closer to a massive commitment to Texas, Uh, a Dallas developer and architect that uh, has ties to Wells Fargo, apparently has submitted plans to rezone a couple tracks in Irving, Texas. And while it may be too late to get in on Wells Fargo moves, you know, anytime somebody puts up a big office complex in a particular area, that area becomes ripe for development of other multifamily products, land values go up. And so when I say brokers start your engines, it may be wise to start looking at maybe cheap plots of land if there is such a thing in that market, in that surrounding area. So that's our brokers start your engines thing. Any thoughts on that Lonnie?
2: Yeah. So it's just another example. Dallas specifically has been a a hotbed for relocations or large corporate footprint. So in the last couple of years, they've had out in Frisco, Toyota move their headquarters or large U.S. presence uh, out to Frisco. State Farm also put a, a you know, over a million square foot uh, facility, uh, I believe out in Richardson. And so, uh, you know, Wells Fargo, and to your point, this is an area that's, you know, develop, being developed currently for mixed use type of live, work, play type of, you know, features. And so this would be a really great get for, you uh, for that Las Colinas urban area, which is a pretty stable office market. Las Colinas is known for having a good uh, office market. It's not in Dallas, it's not to Fort Worth, but it's a really kind of a, um, you know, in the middle suburban location that has some connectivity to the Dallas area rapid transit, which connects to the airport and a few other amenities that make it very appealing for, uh, for office tenants. And there's a lot of multifamily development going on over there right now as well.
1: Uh, in the mixed green category, good for one neighborhood, not good for another. Uh, it's also a case here of the rich getting richer. Raytheon announced it will move its headquarters to Arlington, Virginia, to be closer to Washington, D.C. Raytheon, of course, is is an aerospace giant. This uh, particular story landed on, on almost everybody's feed, every uh, publisher's feed, but The story that we noticed as having at first was the Washington Post. Good news for Arlington, not so good for Waltham, Mass., which is currently uh, Raytheon's headquarters.
0: So, Man, as you said, we have a deal of the week this week. Let's hear it.
1: Well, it's funny you should say that because you reminded me the other day that it's been so long since we had a deal of the week. In fact, I'm not sure we've had one since Lonnie's become a staple of the podcast. We used to have Joe do a a hand drum roll on his keyboard as we we did this. Uh, We may need a a sound effect for this as well.
0: Yeah, I think we need Uh, to upgrade to a real live drum.
1: There we go. Maybe we can get uh, Oz to do it for us. He's
0: a multifaceted
1: musician. musician. Maybe he can give us a a drum roll that we can roll out there. Um, The deal of the week, we're going to give it to Tishman Spire. They purchased... A property in Sunningvale about a year ago, for three hundred and fifty-six million, moved in there. Got Meta slash Facebook to take it over as a tenant, and sold it this week for seven hundred million dollars. So, almost double what they put into it in in about a year, and you know, a three hundred and forty-four million dollar profit is real money, even by Elon Musk's standards. So, uh, good on Fishman Spire for pulling that off. Wowza. That's all That's I have to impressive. say about that.
0: <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah, that one wins. All right, let's 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 turn to hotels. We had uh, a couple stories, and one of them was from a trading alert that we put out in Trepwire. And if you are not a Trepwire subscriber and you don't get the trading alerts, you should ping us to find out how you get those. So send us an email at uh, podcasttrep.com and we'll let you know.
1: So we talk about TrepWire a lot. It is our 6.30 a.m. device. It's been around for a long time that we put out credit stories, property sales, new leases, new property moves, and so forth. They tend to be CMBS heavy, and they are often things that can move the value of bonds either positively or negatively. And I'm not sure we've ever seen one quite as as lucrative in a recommended trade as this particular one. Back in February of this year, uh, we urged CMBS investors to look at the MSC 2011 C1 deal, uh, noting that there might be some real unrealized value in the lower rated bonds of that deal. Our reason for the advice was that there was only one remaining asset behind that conduit deal. It was the $77 million Hilton Times Square REO asset. And, the bonds were trading at such a deep discount and there was so much momentum for a sale. And lastly, the value of the asset um, had already been so heavily discounted that we said these bonds had been oversold. So we urged investors to go to go in there and look at these bonds. Um, the bonds, the most highest rated bond in that particular stack was trading at the time for about 86 cents on the dollar. So a deep discount, we suggested that this bond not only would be paid back at par, but about 5 percentage points in unpaid interest shortfalls would also be paid back, leading to a 20% return of principal in short order. In addition, we pointed out that the new appraised value which came out in February was above the outstanding balance of the loan by about $8 million and that the special servicer had renegotiated the ground lease to be more favorable to whoever they were selling the property to. Fast forward to this week, the the property was sold for 85 million, which was about 10 million higher than where the loan balance is today. It should result in not just a 105 payout on the G class, which is the highest rated class out there. It should result in almost a full payoff if not a payoff of par plus to the three or four bonds immediately below that in the credit stack. So we recommended this uh, as a trading idea in February, three months later. Um, we think that it turned off. Turned out very lucratively for people. Um, not shortly, shortly after our first trading alert in February, the bond was trading up to 93, the G class. And now we think it to be, will be resolved either this month or next month at about 105. So uh, really impactful trading alert there. Um, if you were a beneficiary of this, if you were uh, somebody who made money on this and you see us at Crefsey next week, an attaboy would be greatly appreciated. Uh, anonymity will be protected. We won't give you up as somebody who took advantage of this, but if you did, a uh, an attaboy for uh, the TREP research staff will be greatly appreciated. Uh, Hopefully somebody out there, some listener or some reader of CripWire, Wire, uh, made a killing on this.
2: Yeah, just to follow up a little bit on that, man, while it's good news for the bondholders, if you look at it just from the CRE perspective, the sale was only about 185000 per key for a Times Square hotel. Now, the hotel had been shut down. They had permanently closed the hotel. 460 key uh, hotel was built in 2000. Initial appraisal amount in 2010 was at 246 million. Had been reduced to 83, excuse me, 93.8 million in 2022. As you just mentioned, sold uh, for around 85 million. But at 185 thousand per key, it's a pretty low watermark for that type of asset in that location. So it's it's great news for the bondholders. Maybe less than stellar news for the market at large. And it'll be interesting to see if there's any ripple effects for other hotel assets in that market.
1: The real deal used the term measly in its uh, headline for the story. Did, measly, yeah. 85 million, down 65% uh, since the last sale. But to be fair, that's the going rate. It's not like the special servicer here gave this asset away. We've seen other assets in the Times Square neighborhood trading for that two hundred dollars to $215,000 per key, um, which now that we've seen three of those or four of those, that is the market uh, at this point. And what it also does is it tells you for other hotel loans for which the collateral has yet to be written down, that those are pretty good benchmarks for what you're gonna expect these hotels to be resolved at when they trade six months from now, a year from now, right? You know, believe the numbers. Nobody is gonna sell a every man Times Square hotel for 400,000 a key now when the market is 200K.
2: Yeah. But it's, you know, the, I've seen several other markets. I actually had sent some stuff over to Martha this week. There was a hotel in Austin that just traded for over a million dollars a key. So, you know, it's, it's very market centric. Um, Having been in New York over the last couple of weeks, though, uh, the tourist activity is significantly picking up. The streets are a lot busier. It seems like the hotel availability and I know the hotel pricing has you know, on a per night basis has gone up significantly from when we first started traveling back in August. Um, so hopefully for some of these, you know, acquirers of property, they're able to uh, have a really low basis, put some capex into the property and turn them around into the future. There should be some really good opportunity for these folks buying at uh, 200000 or less per key to have some real upside in these assets into the future.
0: And turning to Cleveland, we saw a transaction that didn't go through.
1: Yeah, this is the other side of what Lonnie was saying. Um, I do agree with what Lonnie is saying that there's an incredible regional uh, impact here. And when you get outside of um, areas that are either over hotelled like Chicago or New York, uh, and or um, very dependent on overseas travel and or business-centric, and or, right, there's a lot of andors here, have negative um, news stories about crime or or other things. When you get away from those areas, we have seen a tremendous rebound in hotel valuations and performance. We talked about that last week. Um, But New York and Chicago remain messy and sloppy. Uh, But one in Chicago, one in uh, Cleveland, to Martha's point, that we saw which was was not a happy story uh the renaissance hyatt hotel in cleveland uh was slated to be sold um this is a 491 room uh, it's a combo deal a 491 room renaissance cleveland hotel and a 293 hyatt regency arcade uh that was under contract to be sold but the buyer has pulled out of that that comes from cleveland.com and And that's the other side of the coin that, um, you know, you will continue to see bumps in the road in every market, right? Not every hotel will recover uh, as it should. My guess is because the article noted that it was market conditions that uh, undid this deal is that the buyer saw uh, what was happening with spreads and valuations and so forth and wanted to, uh, open up negotiations, retrade this thing. And uh, the seller didn't want to do it, if I were to guess, right? I'm speculating there, but they they cited market conditions for the reason for walking away. And uh, we haven't seen a lot of this, uh, but we did this week in Cleveland.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's going to be the the story over the next couple of months is uh, retrading of deals or backing out of deals because of cost of capital, market conditions, etc., Sellers have really had the upper hand for some time, but as we mentioned on the front end of the of the uh, market update, transaction volume has slowed. And I wouldn't say like this deal or any of these deals are completely off the table. I think we're starting to see just a, a leveling of the playing field, and you're going to start seeing people back out deals. You know, I know from my brokerage experience, most deals die two or three times, sometimes five times, before they actually uh, you know go to closing, and so. I wouldn't be surprised if we see this one back on the uh, radar in the next couple of months, but probably at a more favorable term for the,
1: uh, for the buyer.
0: All right, let's do a quick hit on retail, which incidentally was also a trading alert.
1: So this is about the Walden Galleria. It's a mall in upstate New York, uh, underwater in terms of valuation, owned by the Pyramid Coes. They own several assets in the Northeast. They have been working diligently to hold on to their malls. This particular asset was due to mature this month, this particular loan. The owners were able to negotiate a three-year maturity extension that pushes the maturity out to 2025. The property that encumbers a $200 million plus loan, that loan backs a single asset deal, and that maturity now will be pushed out to 2025. This is what I would call a green shoot. Right. This is a mall that's underwater that the owners are going to fight for. And we've seen a lot of that recently where owners had been hinting at a deed in lieu, stipulated foreclosure, throw back the keys, whatever you want to call it, and have had a change of heart. You know, we're willing to throw in a few million dollars to refresh this if you'll meet us halfway with um, some kind of release of reserves, maturity extension, and, and so forth. And that's a good sign, right? This is not the Mall of America AAA Mall that is going to, you know, perform greatly no matter what. This is a mall that has seen its value cut substantially, and yet Pyramid Coase is out there fighting for this thing. So good on them and good for bondholders in that deal that this is not going to go REO, at least not now and hopefully not in the future.
0: Let's turn to shout outs. We talked with Rachel B from Tampa who said she loves the fact that our podcast is data-driven and only some slight derailing. And she's possibly going to be a guest pod in an upcoming podcast. So stay tuned, we'll keep you posted on that. Louis B. sent us some notes. He's been following the discussion we had on the Raleigh office sublee situation. And we had a lot of crabgrass that we talked about in one of our previous podcasts. He said, as you point out, sublee space has definitely trended in the wrong direction and even provided some data for us. But he says he feels as a glass half full perspective that hopefully signs of topping out are here, we'll see. So hopefully he's right.
1: Morning and Raleigh Durham is here.
0: And Stephen B sent us an article from Seeking Alpha about WP Carey, the REIT, and had some interesting commentary on how they tie their lease to inflation, which Lonnie is gonna give us a quick hit on.
2: Yeah, so according to the article, uh, 99% of their uh, net lease properties have lease uh, increases tied to CPI or capped uh, at CPI. So, you know, that does give them some ability to handle these economic disruptions in a way that's maybe favorable for the REIT, uh, assuming that the tenant can afford those CPI increases. So, contractually, they're obligated to uh, see an uptick in rental rates. Um, but I think this begs the question of, is the, uh, the property owner, the landlord, the REIT in this case, going to um, force a tenant that can't pay out of their space, um, or are they going to try to renegotiate something that's maybe more favorable for the tenant? So I think the numbers were uh, 99% of the, the leases were fixed, tied to uh, CPI um, or capped CPI. 58% of those are inflation linked, 38% capped CPI. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what what happens there. There's going to be a natural lag, obviously. not all those leases are going to turn over, uh, but it does provide them maybe a little bit of a hedge against uh, the current economic conditions.
0: And Joe D, Yankee Clipper, and uh shared some stories. everyone's seen the Cole stories of franchise group that's looking to purchase that organization and do a sell leaseback program that had a lot of back and forth on Twitter and in a number of media, uh, which we didn't really talk about at length here until, uh, until there's something more concrete. We probably won't have a further discussion on it. However, they were concerned that Manis might have to consider shopping somewhere else if that happens.
1: Well, everybody knows that I am a very frugal person, particularly when it comes to my wardrobe. And we all talked about early on Target lowering of guidance, they lowered guidance, saying they were over inventoried and they were going to have to cut costs. And uh, as you can imagine, my ears perked up quite pointedly as I thought, uh, this sounds like, uh, this smells like a discount waiting to come. So I think I may turn in my, my Kohl's card and get one of those Target cards and start getting my, my, uh, my wardrobe from there. It's, it just seems quite my style cheap and uh not very fashionable right isn't that the uh i
0: don't know target's actually it's not too bad
1: it's quite actually, fashionable
0: yeah it's kind of fashionable
1: huh? yeah and if you, and if you... otherwise but i will uh but then again i'm not a fashionable guy they probably think uh, i will you know they already think that i i shop at you know secondhand stores <laughs> right they think that they do i shop at goodwill and i have to tell them no this is the same shirt i've been wearing since 1979 like i uh... It's a little tighter than it used to be. But yeah. I will throw in a, a public service message before we finish shout-outs. And that is, I was golfing last week, and I got caught in an incredible squall. It was, it was really biblical in the amount of rain that was coming down. So it torched my phone. And so for listeners, clients, and other TREP people that have been trying to reach me by text, which seems to be the way to go since COVID began, I'm not ghosting you. I am not able to access my phone. And having not backed up anything I have to the cloud, I am starting from scratch with my contact list. Ooh, so yeah,
0: we can verify see, that uh, that's true. But
1: it, it, it's, I'm definitely not shunning you out there. So you'll have to cut me some slack and email me, go back to the, or write me a letter. You there know, you go. I always like getting mail.
0: Snail mail. And a couple of programming notes. We mentioned we're going to be at CREF-C. If you are going to be there, we've already had a few people reach out to us that want to meet us. We're going to have booth number two, and we're going to be on the 10th floor in a meeting room as well. We have a number of sessions where some of our team will be presenting in the Portfolio lender Survey and a discussion about office trends. So check that out. We also have a team in Barcelona for ABS. So if you are headed that way, you could check them out. And one of the things we'll be handing out is the midyear Magazine, which has chock full of TREP data and CRE direct stories. It is free. So if you would like a copy of it, reach out to us. We will send it to you. There's an electronic version and a printed version, and we'd be happy to snail mail you one if that is your choice, Manus.
1: Look for it at newsstands everywhere.
0: Exactly. So with that, we'll close. Thanks to our producer this week, Julia Salman. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or a comment, send an email to podcast.trek.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well.
1: That a boy.